Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prosperos Sunday meeting. The Prosperos is the school of ontology. Ontology is the science of being. Being. Before you can be anything else, you have to be. It's my great pleasure today to introduce Prosperos mentor, Pamela Rodoff. Pam joined the Prosperos in 1974, soon after moving to Denver to become more involved. There, she and her partner, Barbara Hager, were very active in the Prosperos and helped me considerably by offering me a place to call home when I taught Prospero classes there. We were a family and helped each other in many ways, not the least of which was the deep love, respect, and friendship we shared with each other. Pam got her high watch in 1977 and was granted mentorship a couple of years ago. Pam's description of attending her first Prospero seminar goes like this. I had no intentions of attending my first seminar. 30 minutes before it started, I was still sitting home watching TV when suddenly I felt a painful panic. It almost bent me in half. And then there was this terror that I was going to miss out on something important. I grabbed my keys, dug the flyer out of the trash, and attended my first seminar. We're all so glad she did and are so glad now to have the opportunity to listen to her talk and participate in her exploration of thankfulness. After her talk, Pam has asked that we have about 30 minutes to share with each other what we are most thankful for. And now I give you mentor Pam Rodolph. Well, Ben mentioned that we lived together in Denver, and there's something that you may or may not know about him. He's Italian. <laughs> no, he is really Italian. <laughs> the, uh, those of us, most all of us worked outside the home, for, except for Ben, he worked at home. And so he would sometimes make lunches for us. And I'd get to work and dig at lunchtime, dig out that tuna fish sandwich and a bite into pizza. Why? He loved to put oregano in everything. So no matter what he fixed for you, it always tastes like pizza. But anyway, I'm, I'm just a student. I'm not anyone special. So I may do, be doing the wrong thing in giving this talk today. I may have mm, gone outside the rules, but being just a student, I don't know all the rules. I've only been in the Prosperos 46 years, and you're <laughs> going to have to give me time to learn them. And on top of that, this really isn't a Sunday meeting. It's more a meeting. It's more like a sharing. And with this week being Thanksgiving, I want to talk about what I'm most thankful for. And then, like Ben said, we're going to call on you all to do the same. We don't have, do we have anybody new in this meeting? If you, if you are here new um, and you are here and you're new, well, if you're here, you're more than likely a seeker. I don't know what your experience is, but I'm pretty sure you can relate to some of what I talk about today. And what I'm most thankful for is something that at first seemed too insignificant a goal to 
be worth all the fuss. I want a razzle-dazzle magic, ascending to the heights, becoming a superhero. And then later, much later along this road less traveled, I began to conceive it as an impossibility. I'm talking about change. Change for those of you familiar with Gurdjieff is his way out of prison, escape from prison. I think most of us are familiar with our own personal, emotional and mental prisons. So I won't address this, but if you wanna find out more, you can just ask after we finished with this. So I wanna talk about what's beyond our prisons. What does change mean? What does it look like? This will be a bullet point discussion of changes that took place in my life. When I first got in the Prosperos, my first mentor was Suzanne Deacons. She told me that change or growth occurs on an upward spiral. She talked about change in a way that made me think that some kind of overall permanent, be permanent change in being was possible. But the nag in the back of my mind wouldn't buy into it. I just thought that was something she said to get us to use the methods. I conceived a real change occurring over only lifetime, over lifetimes of personal work on yourself, if there are lifetimes. But I was wrong. For me, as many things have done in my life, the changes I'll be talking about occurred secretly and probably over time and then made themselves known all at once and suddenly. So it's been easy for me to observe the effects of some of these changes. The only reason I know, even know these changes occurred is because my viewpoint of myself, of other people, of the events of my life changed drastically. And as we've been taught, that's the only change in your control. But lucky for us, that's the only change that matters. The Prosperos puts heavy emphasis on change. And I could never get a clear picture of just what this might look like. Zane talked about it at times, but still it was confusing to me. And that's the rub. We think we understand a concept because the word is familiar to us. Words like mature and change. We've heard, about, we've heard them so many times, we think we know what they mean. And to further complicate things, our understanding of, of uh, words change with change in being. All my life, I felt like that little girl who's always in trouble looking over her shoulder, but outwardly I was supposed to be mature. In my 20s, I was always on the verge of financial disaster until later that decade when I finally got a good job. I got a job, uh, my first job in architecture, and I was able to rent a decent place. I got medical insurance, I bought healthy food, I started learning to cook, I paid my bills on time. But no matter how much I rose the occasion of responsibility, it did not give me a feeling of maturity. No one talked about what maturity was supposed to feel like. On a Sunday morning, I left my apartment, walked out to the curb and sat down. I looked up and down the street and being Sunday, it was empty. For the, and, and I realized that that was how I felt inside. For the first time in my life, I recognized that something was missing. Not until the day I felt believed and walked in the knowledge of my own self-worth did I feel mature. And maybe that should be part of maturity's definitions, the unequivocal knowledge of your own self-worth. 
as for changes in our life or hints on how we could live better, we can get hints from people we admire, but to truly know something of this nature with all of its tentacles and nuances, you have to become it. You become your change. In fact, you are the change. As with everyone, I face at times what seemed like insurmountable challenges in life. Some hit so suddenly and intensely, there is no time to think about them. But I did manage to grab onto the spiritual practices I learned in this organization. When the real hit the fan, the methods I learned here was what I grabbed onto. I'm sure Christians have used prayer for the same thing. It's the same idea as the man in the foxhole, finding religion. But I didn't know how much a part of me these methods were until years ago, the IRS emptied my bank account and came after me for $75,000 in back taxes. I had never dealt with the government or the IRS. So my imagination turned instantly juvenile. I jumped to all of the horrible things they could do to me, let least of which was imprison me. Working the methods was no fault, small feat because my mind was seemed like it was locked in terror for days. But work them I did and I found that they gave me a calm in the midst of the storm. Then I found that the more I worked the methods and stayed in the present moment, my mind was free and clear. And frankly, I was emotionally euphoric a lot. And oddly enough, I found the one time that was best for me to, that I seemed to do my best in constant work was when I, had, when I was working my regular job. I was a medical transcriptionist, which was boring work, repetitive, left my mind fairly free. When I discovered, after I discovered the benefits of working on myself while I worked, I began to look forward to work, waking up in the morning. So I looked forward to going to work. Sometimes I was reluctant to quit because I knew the rest of the day would be all about distractions. But even though I experienced these benefits of almost constantly using methods, spiritual methods, there was still no kind of permanent change that I could tell. It seemed, at least to me, that when I spent periods of time not working on myself, things would fall back pretty much the way they were. While I was in California, I did a lot of pretty intense counseling and work on myself there for several years also. And even though I gained insights and new understandings, things did not seem to change in an overall way. I kept going, I think, because the insights that's what kept me going, the insights and occasional spiritual experiences, that breath of fresh air. And I began to think insights were the prize. Then one day, while at home alone working, something very subtle got my attention. I stopped work and pulled back from my desk. I waited for this silent nudge to make itself known. And then it did. A change had taken place and consciousness was alerting me to pay attention. And that moment was a game changer. The first thing I noticed was that I was happy and that I'd been happy for a while. The kind of happy I hadn't experienced since childhood. What I didn't realize at first was how profound these changes were. And it, 
I sensed that things would never be the same again, but I didn't know that I would continuously discover the effects of this changes in my life to this day. For one thing, at best, my resting state had been one of a low key unease, but now I carried an almost constant sense of well-being. And since that day, I haven't experienced any kind of baseless depression or boredom or nagging pessimistic expectations. I'm going to venture a guess of what actually took place that day. I spent, and this isn't important here, I spent much of my childhood in rage due to almost constant mis mistreatment of one kind or another. Those motions are additive. The more you allow them, the stronger they get until they settle permanently into the unconscious and act as your identity. They produce a film over everything you're aware of. I remember learning, I think it was in AA, that we all have different personality orders, but they are usually fueled by one particular character flaw. I think maybe even Gurdjieff and uh, Uspensky talked about that. My character flaw was rage. Among my closest friends, I had the reputation of someone who was moody, touchy, quick to anger. Suzanne said she just remembers me being willful, but that was my best behavior. I hated cheerful people. I, it was my rage reacting to all those situations and calling itself me. I hated cheerful people, also people who were always calm. Sometimes, not always, I felt like I would love to have a go at them, to bring them down and show them good doesn't exist. If I was regarded at all, I think I was looked at as a fairly nice person, but that was not what was going on inside of me. There's so much I encounter now that I don't have a response for. I was telling Suzanne not long ago that sometimes I still find that I don't know how to be in life. I still run into situations that would have me loudly reacting before and I'm just standing there with empty hands, so to speak, wondering what's supposed to be happening. Gurdjieff said that man's problems is he is always doing and that to progress, he needs to stop doing. My rage identity was always doing, always reacting, always judging, always making decisions I had to pay for. Not doing is uncomfortable. I'm still not used to it. Rage even made subtle decisions, always gauging the threat level of anyone new I met. And one or another, rage determined my likes and dislikes of almost everything. Now, with change, I'm not saying I was the devil and now I'm an angel. I'm not talking about the kind of person I am. I'm not talking about how you or the world might see me. I'm talking about how I see you. That's what changed. My judgments have been replaced by a blank page that they themselves fill in, and for the most part, not penciled in by my unconscious. Instead of reaction, I often just stand as awareness, observing, discerning. Instead of labels I react to, I now see symptoms of problems. Life all had all one color for me. I couldn't see clearly because there was no contrast. I see from two levels now, which does create contrast and allows me to see more clearly. And I've been able to observe things I hadn't seen before out there.
in the world. I'd seen them in myself, but I had never seen them. I uh, reflected back to me so clearly. I hadn't seen them before because my vision was always clouded with my own reacting. I'm talking about people's accusations of one another. When someone in anger spews accusations at you, it's almost never about you. Most of the time, the accusations don't even fit. There's a difference between what you observe in anger or reaction of any kind and uh, discernment. Discernment is without any kind of personal spin on what you're seeing, whereas reaction always carries some judgment. So somebody jumps in front of you in line and you instantly feel disrespected. The other person's actions signify to you that you're not to be regarded because you are unimportant. You're nothing. You see it that way because you carry a deep belief that you're worthless. Discernment would be to simply observe the act. In fact, being calm and not personally involved, you might observe that the perpetrator wasn't jumping in front of you at all, but was simply lunging for something they dropped. Now get two people yelling at each other and they might as well be speaking Mandarin. They are like two people in a duel firing at each other by facing, aiming at each other by facing in the opposite direction. I had never before seen it so clearly. In all those screaming matches I participated in through the years, I always thought I was communicating and you were just refusing to see reality. But then someone once told me that if they wanted to commit suicide, they'd climb to the top of my ego and jump down to my IQ. And that pretty much sums up what takes place when two people go at each other. Also, I had always, always had very definite requirements for friendship. You had to be important in some way, whether a member of the in crowd or just more accomplished than myself. Association with anyone I consider not to be up to my standards was depressing to me. My behavior towards these people was sometimes dismissive and callous, but I've discovered that I can be friends with anyone and not wish that I was somewhere else. I don't need my tick boxes anymore. A readiness for combat was replaced with a new readiness to help that literally poured out of me at times. Later, when my partner fell, fell ill due to terminal cancer, I was given an abundance of this energy when I had to take on all the responsibilities of her life. Now I'm learning that trying to solve everyone's problems can be annoying to other people. <laughs> Another signpost of real change for me was revealed in my attitude towards sick people. I had always resented illness in others. I resented being expected to commiserate or sympathize with them. And I deeply resented being expected to take care of anyone sick. It always felt like I was expected to give something I didn't have or was never given to me. I learned that this grasping and selfishness on my part was not a fact of who I was, but a symptom. In like kind, all characterizations we label people with are not factual accounts of their identity, but if true, are symptoms of an illness and affliction, disease of the heart. In later years, when my partner did fall ill due to terminal cancer, I, I took over every part of her life with ease. I can't stress what a phenomenal accomplishment that was for me. 
I don't think I would have ever risen to the task as my former self. But along with the death of me, my viewpoint of my partner was returned to the beautiful person I had met all those years ago. And even though I had resented people who I judged to be good, that was exactly what had attracted me to her. I loved her for her goodness, her innocence, her caring, her decency, everything I felt I was lacking. I had forgotten how funny she was, how much fun we have with each other, we had with each other. We literally moved our relationship up that spiral Suzanne talked about. And that change is the one I'm most grateful for having lived long enough to experience. And it qualifies me to say, no relationship is beyond recapture. It's far easier than you think. Just untie the first knots. That'll give enough slack so your partner can begin to untie their end. Before when I was presented with a volatile situation, my belief and feeling was that my choices were to react or be destroyed. But I had no belief in my value. That has changed. I can't make a list of my abilities or accomplishments to prove my value, but now I know I don't have to. I don't even have to know what that value is because my value does not depend on abilities or accomplishments. Life, my life, your life, all life is completely valuable just by existing. There is nothing you can do to add to that, to make you more complete. Your job is to express what is already full. And we are meant to be here. We are important. Before, when I was disrespected, it was all out war. Now, standing solidly in a sense of worth, I can just calmly say, you don't have the right to treat me like this. Stephen Covey says, if people can express their feelings and convictions with courage, balanced with consideration for the feelings and convictions of another person, they are mature. Another mature maturity definition. Expressing my feelings respectfully to another person may have no effect on them. But when I say it, I believe it, I feel it, and I don't have to fight about my worth. In the crossroads, we're told to look at our unconscious makeup as a brick wall. Using spiritual methods will bring out a brick here and one there until a section of the wall falls down. In my case, it felt like the whole West Wing collapsed. And even though told to deliver di differently, I secretly always believed the human condition to be normal, inevitable, and inescapable with its myriad of conflicts and accidents and wars. That was reality to me. When in class, I would hear that it's not normal, that one's health of mind, body, and soul was only normal when it aligns with the attributes of truth, my ears would hear an added caveat. Normal in heaven, but not on earth. But that day, a much clearer picture of normality slid into view for me, and it did not include the human condition. The clarity that the human condition is most certainly abnormal and perhaps a few small steps away from insanity was never more visible to me. I found that I was more sensitive now, but with a shift. Instead of being sensitive to being disrespected, I now found my sensitivity directed to the problems of other people. I don't seem to have the blocks I had before when it comes to other people's suffering. 
I'm not spared their grief now. And even in empathy, when I know there's something beyond tragedy and I can point in that direction, I'm still not spared their grief. Another signpost of change in my viewpoint and maybe one of the most important was I found that I now walk in life expecting things to turn out. Always before, I was always looking for all the things that could go wrong, giving myself no peace of mind. To this day, I'm still running into situations that I suspect are affected by this change. And this one may have nothing to do with, it may even be insignificant, but all my life, my, prefer my preferred color scheme has always been earth colors. I have a lot of tarts, so that may be why. Oranges and yellows and browns and all tones of them. I was in architecture as a draftsman, and when I was given the task of designing rooms, that's the colors I always used. I never wavered. Recently, I noticed my baseboards needed cleaning. I started cleaning, that didn't work, so I painted them, and then that led to painting that room, that led to painting the whole house. At the end, when I was through, I walked through and it hit me. I had chosen all ocean colors, ice blue, light teals, dark teals, deep purples, light purples, coral colors, not an earth tone in them. I don't know the significance of that. I just find it really suspicious. I'm going to make two statements that are pretty much probably pure personal opinion. Number one. I don't believe we're mature until we know, feel, and consciously carry a sense of our worth. Two, it does not seem to me that you can bring about permanent change by using willpower to emulate what you think might change in gender, although they do say fake it until you make it. If there were anyone here under 40 and they were entering, or if you are, and you're entering midlife claiming to excess baggage, values that are no longer obtainable or no longer fit. It will, feel, it will feel like being squeezed down that original birth tube all over again. And if you don't know by now, you're not gonna like it. Willpower seeks to affect action that does not agree with the unconscious. So to complete the action requires force. It is not a humanity's wiring to learn or change through force. But there's a way to circumvent willpower. Just get yourself out of the way. Approach life as much as possible with humility to stop being in conflict with the present moment. You don't affect change, you allow change. Become aware of your triggers, question your motives, develop an ego reaction memory. Be ready for your triggers and release them if you can. Stop being in opposition to yourself. It's not even the original trauma that keeps us enslaved to an emotionally meager existence. It's the reinforcement of the event through reaction over and over and over. We live, in a, li we live a life of relationships, most of which are self-destructive. And consciousness is a jealous God to have a relationship with it, you have to break off all your other relationships. On the highway, again, someone cuts in front of you. You feel instant fear. You're built for that. Your senses and reactions are alerted and made ready to spring into action. What you are built for is the self-righteous anger you pile on top of it. 
That's the re in reaction. In that moment, you establish a relationship with your self-righteousness. You have a relationship with everything you take personally, to the insult, the embarrassment, the guilt, the hurt feelings. You must break up with the world to make room for the cosmos. That is what it takes to bring about change. And to me, real permanent upward change can only be brought about by divine intervention. It's always there pushing on the door. Everything looks impossible and then magically it's not. There's no ramp, no continuous bridge from impossible to magic. You can't see beyond. There's no answer, nothing further. Then suddenly you're bathing in all the magic the present has to offer. The universe of no answer gives way to the universe of all possibilities. After consciousness created man, then woman, consciousness spoke to man. And it's as though consciousness said, you have been created according to a guidebook, a template. I have given you everything you need to survive. Go out unto the earth and procreate. Fill the earth with life. Throwing in an extra little skill. I call it self-awareness. We haven't done this before, so there's no guidebook. But if you get in a tight spot, you can contact me. See ya. Good luck. Consequently, there is a problem here on Earth. And consciousness has assigned us the mission of correcting it. Evolution has gone as far as it can. It has stalled at our very feet and can't go further without our participation. We carry the flame of evolution now, humanity. And the task is so daunting, the odds so stacked. And even if it doesn't look like it, consciousness sent its best and brightest to take on this mission. Even those who seemingly oppose you, your politics, your spirituality, your ethnicity, are playing their part. Without opposition, we can't complete our mission. None of us were sent here by mistake. You're supposed to be here. You're important. And according to Richard Bach in The Bridge Across Forever, there is a test to see if your mission is over. If you're still alive, it isn't. 